Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly. Well, thanks very much for coming out. Let me start by uh, acknowledging something that we're all thinking, okay? It's a Monday night. We're nice and relaxed. At some point over the next, say, half an hour, some of you, at least one of you is going to think, ah, should have gotten more cheese. So I'd like to say, <laughs> if you want to get up, sneak back, get some cheese and come back, then I will be watching you closely to see that you don't sneak out the door. But other than that, I think, I think we're fine. So if you want to get some more cheese, then please feel free to do that. So... Uh, God and science, it makes sense to split this uh, topic down right the middle of the title, so there'll be a science part and then a God part, which tries to bring the whole thing together. Um, I want to s- We should get clear in our heads how science tries to explain the world, and so I'll, I'll look in detail at an example of that, get into some uh, sort of... We'll reach the cutting edge of physics, actually. That'll be good for the, de- for the first half, and then we'll look at how does science fit into a Christian worldview, and in particular, whether there are Christian... Uh, whether there are questions that are bigger than uh, what science can handle. But I want to start uh, with an experiment that you can all do at home. Uh, No parental supervision is required. Uh, All you need to do is put some ice in a glass and uh, slowly watch it melt. There's a fast-forwarded view of that. This is my experiment, okay? Feel free to try this at home. We've all seen this a thousand times. But it illustrates the point I want to start with. I want to start with a very basic fact about the world around us. Okay? That process we have seen, all seen, a thousand times. But if I, on the right there, hit rewind, then we see a process of ice spontaneously forming in water at room temperature. And I can pretty safely say no human being in the history of the universe has ever seen that process happen, even though it's just that thing in reverse. Here is my basic starting fact, right? Pretty obvious. Some processes in our universe go in one direction in time, but not in the other direction in time. We've all seen ice melt at room temperature. You've never seen tepid water spontaneously form into ice at room temperature. Now, this is such a basic way of understanding uh, the world that we don't really notice it. For example, um, the fact that some processes aren't reversible. If you want to smash some glass... Just throw it at the ground and with your slow motion camera, just enjoy all the pieces flying off into the, uh, the room around. There will, of, of course, be the sound of shattering glass and a whole heap of pieces as the crack in the glass shows there spraying off in all directions. All perfectly normal. However, if you are faced with a shattered glass and you want to put it back together, here's what you do not do. You do not take the shards of glass and stick it around the room, and then make a sound like uh, glass shattering in reverse, and hope that all the pieces spontaneously jump off the floor, uh, rotate and come flying back towards the scene of the crime, all the sound waves bounce off the the, uh, walls around you, and we're all waiting for the refusing, right? Here it comes. Uh, And all come together, the sound waves just come in at the right point, diffuse it together, and lift off the floor. That's not the way the world works. So this is a very basic fact, and it's the fact I want to start with. The reason is because it heads us pretty quickly towards a puzzle about the universe. If we zoomed in on a glass with some ice in it and watched that ice melt on a very small scale, it might look like this. You have green for some reason. Um, My fault entirely. Uh, So the crystal of water, which makes up an ice, and a particle of air or water might come along, 
and as it knocks into one of these, it knocks it out of the crystal, and that, in super-zoomed-up view, is what melting ice looks like. But the weirdness comes as we do what we did before and hit reverse, and what we see is a process that does not look weird at all. In fact, it's the kind of thing that happens in the universe all the time, which leads us in a bit of a conundrum. So here's the puzzle. Some macroscopic, some processes that involve lots of particles, like all the ice in your glass melting, some of those processes are irreversible. They go one direction in time, but not the other. But these macroscopic processes, big processes, are made up of lots of little processes, like that one of that one atom hitting that other one molecule off. And yet, as we look at the physics of the smaller stuff in the universe, all microscopic processes are reversible. When you ask the laws of nature, can this process happen, right? I started here and I made that. And if it says yes, then if you ask it, can I start with the end thing and make the starting thing, it'll also say yes to that. The fundamental laws of nature don't care about the direction of time. The universe clearly does because we've all seen ice melt and we've never seen it spontaneously freeze at room temperature. This is the puzzle I want to start with because it's going to head us towards the very, uh, very start of the universe, to be honest. So here's how. One of the ways that we try to understand big processes is by thinking of them as sort of averages of small processes. When we look at ice melting, um, we wonder why does that happen in that way? And one of the ways to understand it is if we consider... And if you're a physicist, you know that we're always doing this kind of thing, a box with some gas in it. Classic physics setup. You've got molecules of gas that just bounce around. That's basically what a gas is. It's all happening too small for you to see. If we put them in one half of the box, they tend to spread out over the whole box. Right? That's a nice feature. It means that when you take a breath of air, there's probably some oxygen near you. It didn't all spontaneously head over into that corner. This is a nice feature of the universe. But why does it happen? One very powerful way of understanding this is by asking how many ways are there to arrange... Here I've got 24 particles. How many ways are there to arrange these two types of states? If you want to do this one, you essentially have no choices. I give you 24 particles, marked 1 to 24, and you get to decide nothing at all. You have to put them all on the left. That's how you make this arrangement. However, if you want to do this... You have lots of choices. You could put one on the left or the right. You could put number two on the left or the right. All you have to do is make sure that you get equal numbers on equal sides. And there's lots of ways of doing that. Turns out there's actually about three million ways of doing this and only one way of doing that. And so here's part of the answer to the conundrum. Why does this state tend to turn into that state? This is what we call a low entropy state. This is what we call a high entropy state. It just means probabilistically... These ones, if you start here, they tend to go there. We can sort of see why. If stuff bounces around and doesn't care about left and right in this box, then it'll tend to spread out because there's lots more ways to be spread out. And so we have part of an answer here. Here's our ice melting. There's the ice, and as time goes on, it's slight, sort of half melted and then completely melted. And when we understand the energy that's involved in these processes, what we find out is there's not many ways to arrange the ice so, uh, water so it does this, more ways to do it like that, and even more ways to have a totally melted glass of water. And that seems to be a very nice explanation for why this process happens. 
Here's the problem, and it's this that's going to take us towards the solution, by showing that actually we've miss we're missing something from this picture. This kind of reasoning, right? I'll start with the way the universe is, right? Okay, I see the glass. What's going to happen next? It's got to work no matter how you want to start your system, where you turn up. So suppose you turn up halfway through the experiment and this is where you started off, but you, don't, uh, you weren't there at the start. If you apply the same reasoning, here's what happens. Right? How many ways are there to arrange this particular arrangement of stuff? Many fewer than there are of arranging that particular kind of stuff. And so, on average, this will turn into that, which is what we all see. Almost certainly this will turn into that. The half-melted ice will melt. This is the most boring experiment you've ever heard of. You can all try it at home. But that gets a tick. Now, that sounds pretty trivial, but is it actually a, a, uh, one of the most amazing uh, uh, achievements of physics from about 100 years ago? This is called statistical mechanics, but I won't give you too many details. The problem comes as follows. If I start with this middle state and I use the same reasoning to ask, what do I think came before the middle state? The problem is this. These, these counting probabilities, right? I'm just going to count how many ways there are. They don't care about time left and right, forwards and backwards. And the microscopic physics doesn't care about time forwards and backwards either. And so actually, what you don't get is a prediction of what we actually saw, which was the ice. That's not what comes out. If we start with just those ingredients, the prediction is that what happened before is the same as what happened afterwards, because it's all symmetric. If the laws don't care about which way time goes, we have to get the same prediction if we go forwards in time and backwards in time, and we're now stuck back in our puzzle, but now it's up on a sort of macroscopic level. This is disastrous. This is totally wrong if... <laughs> right. This is the ice spontaneously refroze a bit and then melted, right? This process, forwards in time, wonderful, great physics, the physics of the Industrial Revolution, thermodynamics, all great stuff, right? The other way, complete disaster, totally wrong, never observed. So, when, so, so far, okay, what I seem to have given you is a whole heap of way that physics can get something wrong. The point I want to make here is there's something missing from this picture and I want to really hone in on what's missing. Okay? We have something called the second law of thermodynamics, which basically says that there are some processes which go in one direction in time but not another. What we see is order going to disorder in the universe, always. Um, we have time-symmetric laws but a strongly time-asymmetric universe. Why is it what's left that we could put into this picture to solve this puzzle? And over the last... Well, I mean, there were some physicists who were basically there 100 years ago. It just took the rest of us that long to sort of catch up. Boltzmann was there 100 years ago, for example. Ludwig Boltzmann, the great Austrian physicist. We caught up with what is basically the only solution to this problem. In any physics problem, you basically have the laws which tell you how the system changes and the initial conditions which tell you how the system started off. Okay? If you want to know where the planets will be tomorrow night, you start off with where the planets are tonight, but you need to know how they're moving, and Newton's law of gravity will tell you that. So it's those two bits. So if, it, if the time asymmetry, if the forwards, 
but not backwards of our universe is somewhere, but it's not in the laws, then it has to be in the initial conditions. And so what we need to add to our understanding of the universe to make sense of the world around us is the following statement known as the past hypothesis. The universe began in a very orderly, very special state. In one of those states, like all of the stuff over on one side, like, like the ice in the glass, where stuff can happen, where things will change, where you have useful energy that can be converted into another form of energy, you need to assume this about the universe. Here's how it works. Here's our problem. Right? We started in the middle, but our predictions were exactly the same in two directions because all the physics is the same in both directions, and so we were getting one way wrong. But if we ask a different question, if we stamp down the past hypothesis at the beginning of time, then now we're asking a different question. We're saying... The universe started off in a very orderly, very low entropy state, and I know now that there is this half-melted ice here, what state is in the middle of those two states? And this, we get the right answer for. Hooray, we'll give that a great big tick. Uh, we get the ice, which is unmelted, which we all remember from the start of our experiment. The important thing about this is that you have to put the past hypothesis and stamp it down, and that's all you can say about it. Right? I'll go into a bit more detail about that in a minute, but the, the cheat here is that if this happens at the start of time, you can't go backwards from the start, because there is no before. And so our problem of predicting the right thing this way and the wrong thing that way is solved if there is no that way if there is no past from the beginning, if you can't go backwards from the beginning of the universe. Now, if that seems like a cheat, it does seem like a cheat. You're exactly right. But that's where we ended up. It's a very, very basic puzzle about the universe. We can't deny that it's, it's time asymmetric, and yet all the laws turn out to be time symmetric, and so something's got to solve this. I've been talking about order, and I need to be very careful about using that term, what I mean is we sort of count the number of arrangements of matter that, do, uh, that look like one way or another. Now, that's different to what you might call complexity. So, for example, um, order always decreases. That's the second law. That's what we've been seeing here. This is a decrease in order. In every process, that's what we see. The number, the arrangement, we always go towards one of the more common, more garden variety, more useless arrangements of matter. But complexity can go up and down. Here's an illustration. If you know the, uh, uh, the slow-mo guys, you'll enjoy this. So what they've just done is injected some ink into water. Now, at the start of this process, it's very simple. You just have water and ink in a syringe. In the middle of this whole thing, you have this wonderfully complex pattern, um, which are these billowing clouds of ink filling the water. This is their super slow-mo. If you haven't discovered the YouTube channel Slow-Mo Guys, then enjoy that. Um, they do some marvellous stuff with explosives. Um, so what we see here is a simple state going to a complex one. And by complex I mean it would take a lot of information to describe that cloud. Right? Right? If you have to describe the way that, that experiment started, you say there was a tank of water and then there was some ink in a syringe, hey presto you're done. 
In the middle, you've got to try and describe this horrific thing, wonderful thing, depending on how you look at it. After a while, the ink will just sort of spread through the water and we'll be back to simplicity again. The description of the system will be inky water and we're done, okay? So I've been talking about order. Complexity is sort of somewhere else. Complexity can go up and down so long as you start with a system which has some order in it. If you started off with the ink just completely dispersed through the water, it will not spontaneously form this, right? Because this is a more ordered state than the later one. If I'm right that um, we need to say that there is, in the past hypothesis, that, that we need to say that there is an uh, orderly state at the beginning of the universe, then we should be able to sort of hit reverse on the history of the universe and discover where all, what, what this order looks like as we go backwards in time. So ice, of course, in the glass comes from a refrigerator. That refrigerator is running from electricity, which comes from burning coal, unfortunately. Um, so this coal is obviously a lot of energy in a small package, right? That's why it's quite useful for energy. It's not so good for other things. It's basically a whole heap of sunlight absorbed by plants and then locked away underground and turned into this particular form of combustible substance. So that's a more sort of compressed, the energy in there is in a useful form. That's why coal is valuable. Right? We can do stuff with it, like generate electricity to run refrigerators to produce ice. But we can go back even further. The sun sends energy to Earth in the form of light, and for every one particle of light we get from the sun, it will heat the Earth, but then the Earth will let out 20 particles off into the universe eventually. 20 particles of light at a lower amount of energy. The total amount of energy is the same, but it's spread out now, so it's a bit more useless. Okay? If we want to turn that original light beam into those, tw into those 20 uh, light particles, that's easy. Just heat something up and wait. If you wanted to do this in reverse, you'd have to sort of head around the universe, collect all those 20 particles, send them back towards that thing on the Earth, and try to somehow combine them into that one particle. That's harder to do. Going back even further, the light from the sun, of course, comes eventually, uh, originally from nuclear reactions at its centre. You start with hydrogen atoms, you smash them together in some nuclear reactions, you make helium, and for every one of these reactions, you get roughly a million of these particles. So once again, we see that as we go back in time, the energy is in a more compressed, more useful uh, state as we go back. There's obviously enough energy here in these four particles to make a million of these, but if we wanted to try and reverse the particles, of course, you'd have to head out into the universe, get those million particles of light, send them all back towards the sun and try and uh, break apart this helium. The sun forms, stars form out of clouds of gas, and clouds of gas, again, we have a useful form of energy there. Gravity can make it contract and heat up, and that heat will, of course, uh, eventually ignite the nuclear reactions at the centre of the sun. We go back in time further still, we get to the furthest thing we can see in the universe, which is known as the cosmic microwave background. Okay? Um, if you look far enough back in time, you see a time in the early universe uh, when the universe was basically completely opaque to light because it was so hot that it was basically like the surface of the sun. All the electrons were free, and so light didn't get very far. The patterns that you see here look an awful lot like static, because they are, 
Um, what you're seeing here is differences in the uh, density of different bits of the universe. This is like a map of the Earth, right? This is the whole sky flattened out, right? Looking up instead of down. So as we look out on this bit over there and compare it to that bit over there, right? They're all at roughly the same temperature, and so the early universe was almost perfectly uniform. They're the same conditions everywhere. Just like the air in this room is almost perfectly uniform, if you take a gulp of air over here, you will get roughly the same amount of oxygen as a gulp of air over there. Air, sorry. And it's the same, roughly the same in the early universe, to one part in 100,000, which is kind of amazing. That's a useful form of energy, because gravity can make those small lumps and bumps that you see there collapse and then the entire history of the universe plays out. So, for example, here's what I do for a living. Here are some simulations of how galaxies form in a computer. You start off with a region of the universe and you break it up into sort of small particles. You uh, program those particles to feel the force of gravity from other particles. They'll also feel the force of pressure. When they get very dense, they'll make stars. Those stars will actually blow up. You can see some supernova going off in various places. And we put all of that in an expanding universe and watch it go. And the short story is, from the starting perfect smoothness we see in the cosmic microwave background, structure starts to grow. Because anywhere in the universe which is a bit more dense than average uh, has a gravitational pull towards it. So for example, this lump here is now heavier than everything around it, and so pulls matter towards it. And so the rich get richer, the structure in the universe grows, and eventually we get this, which is called uh, the cosmic web, where you have dense bits of the universe where there are galaxies, and empty bits of the universe called voids, which have been totally emptied out of their gas, and then these bits in the middle that haven't quite, uh, uh, <laughs> haven't quite decided which way they wanted to fall yet, onto this one or onto that one, those are called filaments. But what you can see there is that orderly energy, that useful energy in the early universe, it does stuff, it doesn't just sit there. Because the universe starts off in an orderly, low-entropy state, stuff happens in the universe. And in particular, um, I'll play that again later on because it was fun, but we'll get back to that. In particular, we can ask, okay, we've traced the order of the order we see around us, the origin of that order, back to the earliest point we can. Could there be another even earlier state that we could keep the story going and go back even further? And the answer is, sure. Because science isn't done yet. Thank goodness, I've still got a day job. Okay? But think about the process we've gone through. We said that the start of the universe has to be very orderly. And we traced our way back from ice to freezers, fossil fuels, plants that turn into fossil fuels, light from the sun, nuclear reactions, stars as they form, and we found that actually the earliest thing that we could identify order, useful energy in, was smooth matter, almost perfectly smooth matter, in expanding space. Okay? Can we put something before then? Yeah, maybe. There are some ideas for that. Cosmology keeps going on. But what sort of thing could we put there? If we put something which is more orderly still, then I just keep telling the same story, but I put an extra slide to show the orderly thing we found at the beginning of the universe. And all of the story I told about the past hypothesis, the universe has to start out orderly, stays the same, we just found even more order at the start. 
Another option is maybe it's less orderly. And the problem with that is it breaks the second law of thermodynamics, which says that this process doesn't happen. That's basically what going from less orderly to more orderly means. If you're, uh, if you're watching a particular system and you think, I wonder what it's going to do next, then the transition that goes from something less orderly to more orderly is precisely the thing that is most unlikely to happen. That's exactly what these numbers are telling us. That's what they're about. There's one other slightly weirder option. Maybe, okay, this process won't probably happen, but it might happen by some fluke. Maybe some weirdo fluctuation is going to make this happen. We wait around for long enough and eventually you win the lottery. Eventually some completely chaotic state at the start fluctuates into this smooth matter in expanding space and then we're off and racing and all the rest of the universe happens the way we think it happens. Possible. But there's a problem with this. Quite a deep problem. The problem is this. If you are waiting for a miracle you get the cheapest miracle you can afford. If you're waiting for something unlikely to happen, you get the most likely unlikely thing. Does that make sense? So here's the problem. If we're trying to explain the universe we see today, this is where all our data is, right? It's where your brain is. It's here today, okay? Um, it could be up the back getting cheese. That offer is still open. Um, if we're trying to explain the order we see in the universe today, because order always goes from more order to less order, today is the least amount of order there has ever been in the history of the universe. So if you're waiting for a fluke to give you a certain amount of order, by far the thing it will give you is the universe today, not the universe with even more order 13.8 billion years ago. And so that's not what we'll get a fluctuation of or any of those other things. If you're waiting for a miracle, you get the cheapest miracle, which is that miracle, just get today. And the problem with that story is, sure, it'll explain the universe today, but all our memories are wrong. All our memories are of, and all the evidence we see around us, are of these higher, more orderly states in the past, but if if it happened via a fluctuation, none of those happened. We just got straight to the present with all these wrong memories. That's a pretty weird result. But the story here is, even when you try to explain the order in the universe, you end up positing more order at the beginning of the universe. Here's an illustration of this, a, a historical one. So that is Isaac Newton, with the most glorious hair in physics. That is uh, Laplace, who came about 70 years later. So Newton gave us our, our model of the solar system. The sun at the centre, which had been proposed by Copernicus before, but no one really knew the physics until Newton laid it out. And what he saw in the solar system was order. He writes in his work of the wonderful order that he sees in the solar system, which for him spoke of a creator. Laplace came along 70 years later and proposed an idea for how you could actually make a solar system. What he said was you start with just a cloud of gas, right? Almost any cloud of gas will be rotating in some way or another. And then as, as gravity contracts it, think about a, a figure, state, figure skater twirling and then you bring your arms in, it'll swing faster and the whole thing will swing around in the same direction. The 
gas and dust will collapse into smaller and smaller objects as gravity keeps clumping things together. And via this process, you will eventually get, presumably, something that looks a bit like the solar system. This is called the nebula hypothesis, because that is a nebula. Right? Nebula just means spread out and diffuse. Thinking about the way we've been talking about order, what can we say about this? Well, there's only really two options. Either what Laplace is proposing is that a less orderly state became a more orderly state, and if he's proposing that, then he's wrong. Right? There's a great quote from a famous astrophysicist, a British one called Arthur Eddington, who said, uh, if your theory is in opposition with experiment, well, sometimes they stuff things up, so don't worry about it. If it's in opposition to, say, classical electromagnetism, right, how charges and stuff work, well, maybe it's time those got an overhaul. But, quote, if your theory is opposed to the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There is nothing for it but to collapse in utter humiliation. That is the way physicists talk about the second law, right? Do not mess with the second law, because what it's telling you is if that is a less orderly process, that less state, and this is a more orderly state, what that's telling you is this almost certainly won't turn into that. It'll turn into something else. But, in fact, it is not the case. It is a more orderly state becoming a less orderly one, in which case, if Newton sees order here, he should see more order here. So... This is where science can lead us. At some point, scientific explanations stop. At some point, we just have to start with something and go from there. And what we discovered is with a very sort of straightforward principle, we can actually say a lot about the universe. If we just say it started off in an orderly state, we explain a whole load about the universe. But that assumption itself, we really have to sort of nail down. We've just got to stamp it down and say that's how the universe started and that's all there is to it. I want to sort of get into this a bit more closely. So science is really kind of two things. On the one hand, there's science the method. Science the attitude. Science the program. I'm going to go and look at the natural world really closely and I'm going to use all the systematic effort that I can. I'm going to use you know, maths. And I'm going to use different experiments. I'm going to get other people to check my results. I'm going to go and look really hard at the natural world. Science the method. Right? There's a whole heap of, of, of uh, ways that we do that. And then there's something I've called science the knowledge, which is when we look at the universe very closely, we discover that, in fact, there's an awful lot of order there. There's also a lot of rationality. We can actually discover things about the universe. Right? If you reached out very logically and rationally to try and understand the static on an old TV... You can be as rational as you like, but there's no rationality on the screen waiting for you, so that's kind of a pointless exercise. But when we reach out with rational questions for the universe, right, science the method, we find rational answers. And so it's with this understanding of science that it starts somewhere, and what it finds out fundamentally about the universe is that it is an orderly and rational place, that we get to the God bit. I was, in, uh, I was in Brisbane at the start of this year. I was on, actually, on my way to a conference, uh, which was actually uh, about Christians in science. Uh, there was a whole heap of people getting together in a big room. Um, and as I was walking to the bus, I passed someone wearing this T-shirt. Too stupid to understand science. Why not try religion? I thought, 
I wish I wasn't late because I'd tell him where I was going. But uh, unfortunately, there was not time to start the argument that I wanted to start on the side of the road there. But that's a common view. So I think the argument here kind of goes like this, right? There's this, there's this idea that if, if we've got science, we don't need God. And I think it goes like this. So at one point in its history, human beings believed in a whole heap of gods. Disney fans can enjoy that. Uh, right, thunder gods and rain gods and cloud gods and sky gods and sea gods and all those sorts of things. Um, and we believe that because there must be something pushing nature around. And nature seems pretty sort of crazy and chaotic, right, the weather? So the weather is fickle and so it must be run by people because people are fickle, right? The weather's a bit crazy so it must be run by some crazy people up there who occasionally get grumpy. Right? At some point in history someone got bored of remembering all the names of the gods so they just sort of rolled them all into one god and then all you need to do is add some sort of weird rules and write some scripture and then, hey presto, you've got religion. But, so the argument goes, science has shown us that actually the world consists of laws, consistent laws, laws of cause and effect. So the gods don't do things to nature, nature does it to itself. Water makes clouds, which make lightning and thunder and rain, and so we don't need all those gods if, if water does it by itself. And so here's the argument. We don't need gods because nature is the cause of natural things and we don't particularly want gods because... Um, that's causing pain to some of you, Chris Hemsworth fans. Um, we don't want gods because mindless mechanical causes, just automatically ca automatic causes, explain nature's fundamental orderliness better than a whole bunch of people in the sky. So that's... I think the argument here as to how these things are supposed to be, God and science are supposed to be in opposition. Um, obviously, if you're a Christian, your first response is, that's not our God, right? Handsome though he may be. I want to sort of illustrate the difference here between the sort of classical picture of big people in the sky, God, versus what the Bible actually teaches about God. And to do this, I want to tell a very old story. This is an old story called the Enuma Elish. Uh, it is the Babylonian creation myth from about 1000 BC. Uh, it got recited every New Year's Day um, and it was discovered in 1849. So if you enjoy stories, right, you've not heard this creation story before in here, I assume, you've not, you don't tell this one every New Year's Day. Let me jump right in. We start off with some dragons. Chaos monsters are what they're called. So there are mother and father chaos monsters, uh, dragons called Apsu and Tiamat, who have a whole heap of children, including one who is particularly powerful called E. Now, just to show you that human nature has not changed very much in the last 3,000 years and that there is so much in common that we have with these people, the event that ticks off, that kicks off all the controversy and all the tension in this story is that the children are noisy and the parents cannot sleep. That is literally how it kicks off. And less, more, more extreme, but slightly understandably, Apsu says, let's kill them, to which his wife says, no. Um, and then the trouble starts, because Tiamat, the mother, warns the most powerful son, E, who then uses magic to put Apsu, the father, to sleep, and then kills him. He then takes his place as the most powerful leading god and banishes Tiamat 
taking for himself another wife, Damkina. Those two uh, then have a son of their own who's even more powerful, still known as Marduk. And at this point, you're thinking, does he run out of uh, Google image searches for silhouettes of dragons? And yeah, pretty close to it, actually. So here's the situation, right? What happens next is, again, this is going to sound familiar, this side gets too rowdy and annoying. So these, the sort of winning gods, the ones who are on the side that uh, uh, banish the other side, get loud and annoying. And so the gods on Tiamat's side say, you must get revenge. This man has killed your husband and they're being very rowdy and annoying. And so Tiamat decides that she will get a new husband, Kingu, and rise up. She has more children and breeds even larger, more um, frightening chaos monsters. And so, uh, as they become more threatening, Marduk says, I will save us. Tiamat is about to wipe us out, make me king, and I will be on top. They do, and the cosmic battle then is about to rage. This is the highlight of the movie, when the CGI monsters really get going. Marduk will fight Tiamat, and Marduk wins. To celebrate his victory, he takes Tiamat's body and rips it into two pieces and makes the heavens and the earth. And that's where the creation bit comes in. They've just made this heavens of the earth, and so what Marduk says is that these losing gods must do hard labour to look after the heavens and the earth, and they, of course, being whinging kids, say, Ugh, right? And, <laughs> no, um, right? Make them do all the work. Um, and they complain so much that actually Marduk changes his mind and says, we'll make someone else to look after it. We'll make human beings to do all the work. Man, a savage, end quote. So he takes Kingu, who was sort of the other leader of the rebellion, and tears his body in part, into parts and makes human beings. By the way, if this were a two-hour movie, that whole creation of the heavens and the earth and human beings takes about ten minutes. So it's mostly a story about dragons. And so as things uh, kick on... Everyone drinks and sits around chanting the 50 um, kingly names of Marduk, and that is the story. So, I mean, that you can make a movie about. If you asked the Babylonians, you know, where did the heavens and the earth come from, that's the story they told, right? They eventually get around to the heavens and the earth bit, but it's mostly about chaos monsters. I told this story to my youth group, which is why I have the slides. Um, and then afterwards, we looked back at Genesis chapter 1. And one of the kids, in classic teenager fashion, said, Ugh, where are the dragons? <laughs> and that is the right answer. Okay? Because there are no dragons in Genesis chapter 1. Right? If you remember the story, uh, God makes light and dark, and then uh, separates uh, sky from uh, water, and basically orders what he wants on each day, and then it happens, and then it's very good, and at the end it's all very good. And it's a bit like asking your five-year-old how their day was. It's just a, con it's a sequence of things one after the other. There is something missing from Genesis 1, and it's dramatic tension. Right? The story is, in a very precise and deliberate way, boring. Because there's no bad guy. There's no antagonist. There's no one who fights God. Right? There's at no point any tension about whether God's going to get exactly the universe that he's after. Right? There's no tense music. Right? 
as to whether the, the earth is going to come out of the oven okay, like on MasterChef. It all just happens exactly how God wants it to. If you think of the world, the universe, as fundamentally chaotic and crazy and unruly, then this kind of account is what you're going to say about where it all came from. Right? What is the universe? What is the physical world? It's some recycled dragon carcass. And once you write that phrase, it stays in the talk. On the other hand, if you take Genesis as your view of the world, clearly you see the world as fundamentally something which is orderly and rational and beautiful and good. And so there's a completely different picture of God behind these two stories. God, the God of the Bible, is a number of things that we can list. He is, firstly, ultimate. God does not have a cause outside of himself. He is supposed to be a mind, or more like a mind than anything else. God is the source of things like truth. Right? God is one being, not a whole uh, a unity there. There is not a sort of a conglomerate of crazy dragons. God is also free. If God decides to create the world... He doesn't have to create the world or to create it any particular way rather than some other way. And God is good. The way that um, moves forward then is when God creates the universe. Right? There's a famous psalm, Psalm 19, which says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens reflect God in some way. And so we find a universe which is dependent on God, which is orderly because it came from a mind which is consistent, which is not a patchwork of crazy bits of this and that and some missing dragon carcass. It's consistent and coherent through time. There's a story about how the universe unfolds, a plan underneath it. Because it's free, the universe is contingent. It didn't have to be this way. It is rational, but it's not inevitable. It could have been some other way. And because of God's goodness, that is reflected in the beauty of the universe. Within a Christian worldview, then, what science is, is simply us looking at all of that as closely as we can. So, in particular, when we do science, we find that science is, first of all, it is not metaphysics in this following technical sense, right? It, we never get an explanation for why the universe is there at all. It's not the question science ever answers. We never find out that the universe had to be there at all. I'll get into that in a bit more detail later. Because the universe is orderly, science finds a universe which is rational and which there are rational rules underneath. I've got another word, big one there, inductive. Here's what I mean by that. When we do science, we look at lots of examples of something and try to draw a general lesson from it to find general laws by looking at particular instances of those laws, right? We say things like all electrons weigh the same amount, a particular amount of kilograms. We've not checked every electron in the universe. There's an awful lot of them. But after we've repeated that experiment a whole lot of times and always got the same result within the error bars, we, we say, you know, we've worked out the way the universe is because it's consistent. When you've solved a little piece of the puzzle, you've really solved it. Because there is unity and a coherence through time, there are laws about how the universe works. It's not just a chaotic a jumble of stuff happening with no rhyme or reason. Because it's contingent, this is an important one, you have to be empirical. 
You have to go and look at the universe. You can't just sit in your armchair with pencil and paper and work out how the world is. You've got to go and look. Right? If you want to write out the nine times tables, you can do that in here. That's all fine. If you want to work out how many uh, rings Saturn has, you're going to have to go and get a telescope and look because we can't work it out in here. Finally, uh, the goodness of God, the beauty of the universe which reflects that, shows itself in that science's rules at its bottommost level are very elegant. Scientists often talk, especially physicists, about how elegant the mathematical principles are under the universe. Right? Now, if you struggle with a certain language, say you were trying to learn uh, French, if you were struggling to understand the basics of it, then trying to appreciate uh, French poetry would be extremely difficult. That's a higher level thing. But once you're really inside that language, you can appreciate the beauty of it. When you really speak the language of mathematics, we discover that when we ask the universe how it works, what we get back is some very beautiful mathematical structures. Now, lest you think that this is just Christianity trying to tack itself onto to science as it's uh, so... Uh, successful in the world, I should point out that this is, by and large, the worldview of the people who started the scientific revolution and continued the scientific revolution. So, for example, if you go... Uh, the scientific revolution usually is said to start with Nicholas Copernicus. You start with him and go through to, say... Uh, so he, he publishes his, his sort of great final work in 1540. If you go through the next 160 years in the history of science, which are obviously a very important, exciting time, to the end of the 1600s, and write down a list of all the sort of scientists who are around and doing interesting and important stuff, what we can do is uh, put in bold all of the ones who were believers in God. Hopefully that makes the point. I actually had to break the rules slightly to extend... Uh, to the birthday of uh, D'Alembert there, who's actually 1717. He's the earliest sort of proper atheist I can find. He didn't even start an atheist. He started off as a deist and then hang out with a guy called Diderot for too long, and, and, uh, who was a philosopher. Who, he was an atheist by the end of his life. But after this point, there are sort of a growing French atheists in the 1700s. But if you're looking at just who are the, who are the people... Um, when science made a... It, I don't think it started with Copernicus, right? There's an awful lot going on with the Greeks uh, and all that. But when science took a massive leap forward, starting with Copernicus and going through all these important names, especially Newton, it was by and large people who saw the, the world in the way I'm saying it's the creation of a good God who made that jump, okay? Now, I've got a few asterisks there. Not everyone up here is sort of the... Um, they believe in God, but there's plenty of heretics... <laughs> who believes in slightly unusual things. So I don't want to sort of uh, gloss over that. But by and large, I think the point is made. Now, you've got to be careful with this point. I don't want to say that science couldn't have happened anywhere else or that Christianity is, is sufficient, right? Or even, you know, right? You just make a... You've got to sort of wait around for the genius of Isaac Newton to come along and they don't come along very often. But the fact is when science took that step forward, it happened in this particular society. Um... One particularly important aspect of the, the relationship between what I'm saying here is that explanations in terms of science don't replace explanations in terms of God. Let me give an illustration of this point. All right, let me ask you a question. 
Why does Harry Potter go to Hogwarts? Well, because Hagrid, the Hogwarts groundskeeper, takes him there. Same question. Why does Harry Potter go to Hogwarts? Well, because the author, J.K. Rowling, decided that's the way the story was going to go. Now, those are both true, and neither one replaces the other one. Right? It would be ridiculous to write a story about the conflict between Hagrid and Rowling, as if you either explain things in terms of Hagrid or you explain them in terms of the author. Okay? There are really two levels of explanation going on here. There is the internal logic of the story where things happen in that world because a world has been created in that way. It has its own way that things work and the story plays out according to the way that the characters interact with each other. Okay? Right? We can tell that story forwards and backwards, what happens afterwards, why Dumbledore sends Hagrid, all of that stuff. Rowling sits over the top of the whole thing there's the internal logic, and then there's the external creator of the entire world. The reason it has that logic entirely, the reason why we can tell this sort of story is because it came out of one particular mind. Right? So we can ask a similar question about the world. Why are sunsets red? Well, because light scatters more strongly off the atmosphere when it's blue light, and so when the light is overhead you get blue, it just scatters off here, but as the light has to plough through the atmosphere... Uh, all the blue light leaves and you get red light. Okay? Same question. Why are sunsets red? Answer, because that's the way God wanted to run his universe. And because God is good and rational, his creation runs to a scheme. There's a purpose. There's a way we can understand it. That's not just some weird isolated fact in the middle of nowhere. We can relate that to the properties of molecules and the way the sun works and all these sorts of things. Like a good book and its plot, the whole lot sticks together. And we can understand all of that and still say that over the top there is the good creator, who for this purposes will be represented by J.K. Rowling. <laughs> I thought it might be a bit counterproductive at this point to put a sort of bearded dude in the sky to represent God, <laughs> given what I've said before. But there is sort of an end to these... When at some point, as we noticed with entropy in the beginning of the universe, you get to the end of scientific explanations. So I want to read this particular quote because it sums it up very well. This is from an atheist philosopher of science and physicist uh, called David Albert. What he said was, the fundamental laws of nature generally take the form of rules concerning which arrangements of elementary stuff are possible and which aren't. Rules connecting arrangements of that stuff at, earlier t at later times to arrangements at earlier times, or something like that. But the laws have no bearing whatsoever on questions of where the elementary stuff came from or why the world should have consisted of the particular elementary stuff it does as opposed to something else, or why there should have been a world in the first place. Right? This is an atheist telling another atheist, Lawrence Krauss, <laughs> that he should be quiet when he thinks that science can actually answer those last questions. With regards to the entropy, with the orderly beginning of the universe, as usual, whenever you've had some sort of, think you've had some interesting thought in, in um, Christianity, the following thing happens. You either find out, A, C.S. Lewis said it already and better than you did, or B, C.S. Lewis said it already better than you did and then shredded it. So in, thankfully in this case... He said it better than I did and didn't shred it. 
But this is from his uh, book, Miracles. He said, if I tell you a story, right? If a man says, Humpty Dumpty is falling, you see at once it's not a complete story. A nature which is running down from an orderly beginning cannot be the whole story. If a nature which disintegrates order were the whole of reality, where would she find any order to disintegrate? When I say the universe begins in an orderly state, it sounds like that sort of story. Humpty Dumpty is falling. We're in the middle of something. How on earth did it get to the the top of the wall? So science in this way asks some deeper questions. Two slides, stick with me. First, as as, uh, Albert said, why does the universe exist at all? When you're a physicist, you always have a starting point with any explanation. You say that there is this stuff out there in the universe, it has these sorts of properties, it started this way, and sometimes when we get the right set, we can explain a whole heap about the way the universe works, but we never explain those beginning points. Secondly, why does the universe exi- uh, Why a rational universe? Why is it that science, the method, gives us science the knowledge? Why is it when we reach out with rational questions for the universe, there are rational answers there for us to hold on to? Science, one of the things that science cannot explain is why science works at all. Science does not predict its own success. Finally, why why do we have a universe that supports life? One of the things we've discovered is there are some basic properties of the universe, like how heavy is an electron, and how fast does the universe expand in its earlier stages. And what we find is, well... What we ask is, what if things had been slightly different? What if we changed these numbers a little bit? And what we find almost always is that we get a universe which is boring, with no complexity. Nothing interesting happens. You either don't get galaxies, or you sort of get some galaxies but stuff doesn't stick, or the periodic table disappears. The basic stuff of the universe is like a Lego set where no two pieces stick to any other pieces, which would really put a damper on you trying to make anything interesting. Now, if you're thinking, hey, those last three sentences were pretty interesting, could you perhaps go on in another 350 pages of detail, then I've got a book for you that I'll mention later on. Let's be clear about what sort of questions these are. These are not questions that say, hey, here's something in the natural world that so far as we know these natural causes can't explain. This is not a gap in scientific knowledge as we currently have it. If we finished science tomorrow, if we nailed the whole universe... If it was like a finished crossword puzzle where we got everything, we would still ask these questions about the universe. It is what we know about the universe that leads us to them, not our ignorance. So finally, there is a choice to be made here, but it is not between science and God. Science fits beautifully within a Christian worldview. There are loads of Christian scientists out there who are studying God's world because they see his rationality in it. The choice really here that I want to present is between God and naturalism, the idea that the universe is all there is, that natural stuff is the only stuff. And even then, let's be clear about what naturalism is trying to say. It is not saying that it has a better answer to these questions. It is saying that there are no answers to these questions. That actually, when you think really hard about it, you didn't want answers to these questions at all. And so the naturalists who have thought hardest about um, what they believe, from from David Albert, for example, to cosmologists like Sean Carroll, will try to argue that actually these questions somehow don't make sense, that the deepest questions we have about the world, 
questions which science as a whole is screaming at us don't have answers. Not that we haven't discovered them yet, not that they'll be really hard to find, but there are literally no true facts that answer these questions. That is the choice to be made. Is the universe ultimately a place where there are reasons at the bottom or is it ultimately a great big bag of shush and a whole lot of please be quiet and stop asking those questions? That is the choice to be made. Uh, so with that, a choice in front of you, uh, I will leave you with that book I mentioned <laughs> and uh, we'll invite questions. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about St Luke's Anglican Church, please visit www.clovelly.org.au.